Hello and welcome to a book podcast supplement. I'm Josh Way. Today, it's our first Christmas special. Now, what could a non-denominational podcast like this one have to say about this quasi-Christian pagan holiday celebration? Well, we're interested in the text of the Judeo-Christian Bible, and that's where we'll be interacting with Christmas. And first, let me just say on a personal note that I am a huge fan of Christmas. It's always been a big part of my life experience as both a religious observance and a secular tradition. And I say that now so that some of the points I'm going to put forth today won't be taken in the wrong spirit. How's that for an intro? So, where is Christmas in the Bible? Well, the simple answer is that it's not there. The events of Jesus' birth are there, of course, but it's quite surprising, given the church's intense focus on the Christmas season, how little physical space the Christmas events occupy in the Gospels and how completely absent is any evidence that the early church celebrated the birth of Jesus. Jump cut to our day when most American Christians regard Christmas as a central and load-bearing pillar of the faith. The history of the Christmas holiday is, thankfully, outside of the scope of this podcast. So instead, we'll take a brief survey of the Christmas material in the Bible and then highlight a few peculiarities which open up some interesting discussions. Again, it might surprise you just how light the Christmas material in the Gospels is. All in all, we get eight short verses in Matthew's Gospel and a chapter and a half in Luke's. That's it. The Gospels of Mark and John begin with an adult Jesus launching his prophetic campaign. And the birth of Jesus is not mentioned anywhere else in the Gospels or in the epistles which comprise the rest of the Greek New Testament. Now, you'd think that the virgin birth of the Holy Infant would be an important piece of the theological argument put forth by Paul or one of the other authors of the New Testament, but it's just not there. All of this is kind of shocking when you consider the cultural repercussions of Christmas in our own time. Of course... We'll discuss the four Gospels in great detail on future podcasts, but in terms of today's topic, we can see why and how Matthew and Luke incorporated the nativity material into their writing. Luke is the most investigative of the four Gospel writers, and he presents material culled from interviews with surviving witnesses to Jesus' life, including his mother Mary. This probably explains why Luke offers the most detailed account of the Christmas story and why so much of that story is about the personal experiences of Mary herself. Meanwhile, Matthew's gospel is a Jewish work through and through, and every word of it is part of a program to present Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Mashiach, Messiah in Greek, the Christ. And so this is his only thought in presenting his very brief account of the virgin birth. This is where we engage in a rather delicate discussion. But first, here is the entirety of Matthew's nativity account from chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But just as he was considering these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. We'll have a lot more to say about the format and argument of Matthew's gospel later on, but today I want to focus on his use of the Hebrew Bible, specifically his quotation of Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's no mistake that Matthew is claiming that Jesus' birth was miraculous, but what is frequently called into question is whether or not the Isaiah passage constitutes a true prediction of that miracle. This is a perennial debate, and it's typically reduced down to a debate about a single word. The word translated virgin in the Isaiah text. Quote, liberal interpreters on one side indicating that the Hebrew word Alma can be translated young woman as easily as virgin, and quote, conservatives on the other side insisting it must mean virgin. What drives me bonkers about the whole discussion is that both sides act as if the broader context of Isaiah, and for that matter Matthew, was unavailable or irrelevant. It is both available and relevant. So let's do our homework. The very least we can do is take a serious look at what's really going on in Isaiah chapter 7. And so we shall. In Isaiah 7, the prophet confronts Ahaz, a wicked king of Judah, who is about to make a very foolish alliance. The full details of this can be found in 2 Kings chapter 16, but the bottom line is that the kingdom of Israel is split in two, and Israel to the north has joined forces with Syria, its neighbor, against the southern kingdom of Judah. Frightened and impatient, Ahaz looks to pay a protection tribute to the massive empire of Assyria. Now, Assyria was a formidable force which was becoming a superpower at this time. Isaiah warns Ahaz against this cowardly alliance which betrayed a lack of trust in Israel's God and which would surely make political trouble for Judah down the road. That's the history behind the exchange in question. Now here's Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, that is, through the prophet Isaiah, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as the grave or high as the sky. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. So Ahaz basically hides behind a mask of religious piety. Oh, I wouldn't dare put God to the test by asking him to protect us. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name God with us. Emmanuel in Hebrew. This is the bit quoted by Matthew. Remember, this is in response to an imminent crisis faced by Judah at this particular moment. Isaiah wants to convince Ahaz that he does not need to buy the protection of Assyria, that God will protect Judah. And how do we know that he will protect us? Because a baby is going to be born. Not some far-off future baby, but the very next king. The virgin here likely refers to one of the virgins of the court, one of the young maidens designated to bear offspring for the king. Isaiah is most likely talking about Hezekiah, the next king of Judah. As for the name Emmanuel, this is a typical prophetic device employed repeatedly by Isaiah, who likes to give children meaningful names. For example, his own children, a remnant shall return, and the child of the sign. You can look in the next chapter and see the same formula all over again. My wife will give birth to a child, and we will name it the child of the sign. Back on track in chapter 7, he continues. By the time he has learned to reject bad and choose good, 
people will be feeding on curds and honey. For before the boy knows how to refuse the bad and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that is Israel, departed from Judah. Before this kid can tie his shoelaces, Isaiah says, the people will be feasting on the spoils of the land once again. By the time this virgin's child grows up, your enemies will be defeated and God will restore your fortunes. Now hopping down to verse 20. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. Now, that's funny language, but Isaiah is saying that God is already planning to use Assyria's treachery to wipe out Judah's enemies, and Ahaz need only wait patiently and keep the faith. Now, the remarkable thing about this entire prophecy is that it all came true. Hezekiah was born, he wasn't cowardly like Ahaz, and in his lifetime Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And because Hezekiah was so faithful, says 2 Kings 18, King Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria were unable to defeat Judah and were themselves eventually defeated at the hands of Babylon. Now let's get something straight before we go any further. We're going to examine Isaiah in detail eventually on book, and his writing is chock full of messianic prophecy, claims and expectations about a future coming king who would one day deliver all of Israel and usher in God's new age. Chapters 9 and 53 are famous examples of this. However, in light of what we've just read, I don't think we can call Isaiah 7 an explicitly messianic passage. It's a word from a prophet about an urgent crisis, one that was fulfilled within its own time. So now, what do we do with Matthew? Is he a crackpot, a liar? Is he twisting Hebrew scripture for his own agenda? I don't think so. I think he's smart. I think he knows exactly what's going on in the Isaiah passage, and I think we're the ones who've been missing the forest for the trees, or in this case, for that one tree. Now, remember I said earlier that Matthew's gospel is all and only about Jesus being Messiah. It's an argument. We'll go into much more detail about what exactly a Messiah is and isn't in later shows. But for now, here's the bottom line. We, meaning Christians and modern Westerners, have defined Messiah backwards from Jesus. So we think that it means one who is born miraculously of a virgin and who dies on a cross. But working forward from the Hebrew scriptures... We see that Mashiach meant neither of those things. Messiah meant the coming king who will usher in God's new age and save Israel and thus the world. This is what Matthew is arguing about Jesus, first and foremost. So now if this is Matthew's starting point, then what he's doing with Isaiah becomes easier to decipher. Virgin is just his entry point into the prophecy, but I don't think it's the sum of his argument. I think Matthew is saying this. Just like in the days of Isaiah, Judah now lives in the shadow of great evil from Rome and from within, and there's a new king in the belly of a virgin who faces a choice. Be a coward like Ahaz and get in bed with the bad guys, or be like Hezekiah and trust God to rescue us and deal with our so-called enemies. Says Matthew, not only will Jesus take the righteous path, he will be the true Emmanuel, the true king who brings about God's purposes. Again, Matthew does insist that Jesus was born of a virgin who had miraculously conceived. That's not what's in question. This is really an issue about fulfillment of prophecy. 
But I think that allowing the Isaiah passage, its full original context, takes us deeper into Matthew's overall agenda than we might otherwise have wandered. I understand why Christians are resistant to this line of thinking. It's much easier to deal with Isaiah as just a soundbite and a proof text rather than a living, breathing text with its own context and agenda. But given the choice, I'd always rather dig deeper and let the text breathe than dash through it with my fingers in my ears. All right, let's put that can of worms back on the shelf and look at just a couple more items. These are not nearly as provocative, just some nativity-related factoids. I have to give credit on this first one to my seminary professor and mentor, R. Brian Widman, who first presented this to me. We all know this familiar plot point from the nativity story. This is from Luke chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The image is ubiquitous. Mary and Joseph, weary from the long journey to Bethlehem and desperately in need of a place to deliver their baby, knock on the innkeeper's door only to be told there's no vacancy and they're forced to stay out back with the animals in the stable. That always struck me as a little strange that a crowning woman would be denied a warm place to deliver her baby. Well, our interpretation of a verse may, in this case, boil down to a single word. The Greek word kataluma, traditionally translated in or lodging place, is actually a much more specific word and is better translated upper room. This is the same word which describes the dining room where Jesus takes his disciples for a final Passover meal in Luke chapter 22. This isn't a public place to rent a room for the night. It's a room within a family home, a room for special meals and visiting guests. Mary and Joseph are said to be visiting Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem during a Roman census. And on top of that, scholarship suggests that it was also the time of Sukkot, a, a Jewish feast of the Feast of Tabernacles. This means that all of Joseph's family would have been coming home for the holiday and the government-mandated headcount. And so it makes sense that the Cataluma would have been full of aunts and uncles who got there first. But surely their own kin wouldn't have them kicked out into the cold to have their baby. So what's the deal with the manger? Well, it turns out this word also has a more nuanced connotation in a first century Judean home. A manger in this setting would likely have been a hewn stone trough inside the house where the special sacrificial animals were kept. Now, flocks and beasts of burden would have been tied up and penned outdoors, but spotless, consecrated, beloved animals set apart for sacrifice were kept close to the family. And so, if this is correct, Mary and Joseph weren't left out in the cold. They were actually invited in to the first floor dwelling where the nuclear family lived with their special animals. And, of course, the placement of the newborn Jesus among these critters carries a certain theological weight. Okay, one last topic. Another standard issue Christmas trope is the visit of the wise men from foreign lands. This account only appears in Matthew's gospel immediately following his short nativity text. Here it is from Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it's written by the prophet. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This story is so familiar that we've lost sight of how completely weird it is. The Mashiach, promised of old, is said to be born on Judean soil, but instead of throngs of Israelites coming to his crib to bow down and welcome him, he's visited by three pagan astronomers. The wise men from the east are not only foreigners from outside the covenant, they are, according to that covenant, practitioners of wickedness, reading the stars, a violation of Deuteronomy. In this story, they are portrayed as the righteous ones, while Herod the king and the priests and scribes are plotting and scheming against the child. Now, I don't have any real insight or a surprising revelation about this story. All we need to do is look at it and think about it to see what Matthew's doing. He's making his case against the current Judean administration, the Roman puppet king Herod and the corrupt religious establishment, and saying something radical about the life of this Jesus. If Israel won't recognize him, says Matthew, pagan astronomers will follow a star and get the job done. This is a story of sharp condemnation on the one hand and subversive inclusivity on the other. Like, like Rahab and Ruth, it's another story about the righteous pagan who will come in and do Israel's job when she won't. Now, we'll see a whole lot more of this type of thing when we take a uh, complete look at Matthew's scroll later on book. But that's going to do it for our Christmas special, friends. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to Book in 2012. I hope you'll continue to join me in 2013. We have a lot more text to read and a lot more to discover about history, literature, and the world and stuff. Merry Christmas, belated Happy Hanukkah, and Happy New Year to you all. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. Find more at book.joshway.com. I'll see you soon, pals. Goodbye. (laughs) 